recognize the significant differences within people and people's level of sinfulness or wickedness. When we don't definitively point this out, it can be somewhat bewildering and even disheartening to Christians. When this happens, they may end up feeling that even though they're working hard at living a good, God-honoring life, they get lumped in with the worst parts of humanity and made to feel as though there is no difference. When I was in the jail as a deputy uh, to take prisoners uh, back and forth to chapel, for instance, most of them didn't know that I was also a minister. Unless they had seen me speaking there or they'd been there for quite a while and we had had conversations. Most of them just thought I was another badge doing whatever I needed to do. Very many of the people there, in fact most, I would qualify as fairly normal folks. Many of them are there not because you would what maybe what we would call their evil people, but they were primarily there because they had a drug problem. And in attempting to support those addictions, they had done some bad things like thefts or maybe even selling drugs to other addicts. Not good stuff, but not the wicked, terribly evil stuff that you would think of with some of the worst people on earth. These people, if you knew them, if you had had conversations with them, you would want to help them. They weren't bad people, quote-unquote. They had made some bad choices, and they were suffering the consequences for those. But some of the people, mostly men, but also a few women, they were what you would probably consider pretty vile folks. People whose every expressed thought that I witnessed or heard was for the selfish fulfillment of their debased desires. The worst of these people, the worst people that, that I dealt with in the jail, they had to be kept in a cell block all their own. They were all put together in a small cell block, not put out in, in the general population, and nobody from general population was put in with them. The child molester the murderers. They were there because even the people who were in jail for some other fairly heinous stuff, those people despised the other people. I want to recognize that there absolutely, positively is a gigantic difference between people at the level of wickedness which they have chosen to give in to and other people at other levels of sin that they have fallen into also. Sometimes we all choose to do something which violates our conscience, all of us. And we feel the guilt and shame of our sin because the Holy Spirit convicts us 
of what we've done. We do something. We know it's wrong when we've done it. And we feel ashamed and embarrassed afterwards and guilty. This feeling is well represented in the acknowledgement of guilt that is spoken of in Ezra chapter 9, verse 6. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. This is someone who is recognizing that they and those around them are guilty of sin. There are, however, walking the same streets as those who are too ashamed to, of their sins to lift up their heads. There are people who Scripture says have seared consciences. They enjoy their wickedness, and they feel no shame. Jeremiah 6, the first, uh, first part of 15, tells us, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. This is repeated word for word in chapter 8. In case saying it once didn't get it across good enough. Our very law which are usually a, a reflection of a society's values, represent these distinctions between different levels of evil and sinfulness. We have distinctions when we have various penalties. Penalties that go from, say, a small fine for a speeding ticket all the way up to the death penalty for our most notorious crimes. This isn't merely a man-made distinction either. Some people say, well, you know, that's just what we've done as people because we try to justify. No. There is a distinction made by God in what uh, levels of violation of good behavior there are. God, in setting up the civil laws for the nation of Israel, did virtually the same thing. In fact, our founding fathers relied heavily upon the book of Deuteronomy when they were shaping our nation's legal framework. They looked back there and they saw, you know what, there are, there are not only different punishments for different crimes, there's different punishments in the Old Testament for the level of intention that you have when you commit a crime. God recognized the difference between someone who, hey, my neighbor's cow kind of meandered loose and came into my property, and I'm just going to kind of leave it there. I'm going to kind of keep it. There's a difference in level of penalty between that and the guy who sneaks off in the middle of the night, goes to his neighbor's barn, opens it up, and takes their cow and brings them back, slaughters it, and eats it. God recognizes, yeah, there's a difference between those things. And we shouldn't pretend that there's not. Now, some of you may have some statements from Jesus that quickly come to mind. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22a. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. 
and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And then down in verses 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. A number of people have talked with me. People from, well, pretty much every church I've been at, but I, I bet there's been three or four from this church about these verses and said that people have told them that this is saying that desiring or thinking the sin is exactly the same as committing it. I've heard similar things. I do not believe that this is what Jesus is saying. Why? Well, for starters, if you're just angry at somebody, they're still breathing. It's different. He's saying that both are bad. You have committed a sin by desiring it. But if you go ahead and go through and do it, now you've committed two sins. I just want to recognize, lest people be confused, that I am not saying that a person who has a lustful or hateful thought, or a person who loses their temper and yells out a cuss word at their neighbor is the same thing as a child rapist and murderer, because they're not. Because some of these and passages of Scripture that we go over, including last week's and this week's, might confuse a person so that they think Christianity says that all of these things are exactly the same and you're just as bad as the worst person in the jail who's facing maybe the death penalty. With that stated, and that's, you know, that was my caveat and it was two pages, so don't worry. Hey, I have a gift for you today uh, because we're having the meal and because uh, usually when we do Faith Promise, we do it as a separate issue, and it takes about five minutes of time there. My sermon is a full page shorter than it normally is. And all God's people said, So you're going to get out of here a little bit early today. And if your nose is better than mine, I can even smell the food cooking. and uh, I have a bad nose. So with all that stated, let's turn to Romans chapter 3. And we're going to go through verses 9 through 26. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, let's pause there and, 
take a look at that. This first section where Paul is quoting from several Old Testament passages, this can come across pretty much like he's saying what I just said isn't the case. It looks pretty bad for the human race. And we might be thinking, um, you know, that just doesn't ring true to me. My grandma was really, really a good Christian. And I never, ever even heard her say a curse word, much less any of that other stuff that just got mentioned. Why is it saying that we're all like that? Paul is using this text, which would be familiar to his Jewish readers, to point out that everyone, everyone, at some point, is guilty of sin. Some a lot more than others, but everyone. It's pretty drastic in how he does that. I think that this is because he's trying to drive home the point to a group of people who are under the impression that their relative goodness, as compared to other people, makes them different spiritually. As though I'm good, I don't need any help. Those bad people are who need forgiveness. And spiritually, they are not any different. Because just as the most vile and wicked person on earth needs forgiveness, Paul is saying no one is perfect. No one has not committed sins. He continues, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since, though, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law was given to them and it was only for the purpose of pointing out where our sin lays. I said in Wednesday evening uh, Bible study that the law to me in my mind can be compared to the locks on a bathroom door. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, these aren't master locks. These aren't, I mean, you don't, you don't have to have an intricate key to open these things up, right? Some of them, depending on it, they got a little pinhole that you can just put, push something straight through and it pops the lock. Or um, one of the ones uh, at my house, you could just take a coin and stick it in the slot and turn it. And that's going to open up the lock. The lock isn't designed to be a foolproof keep you out. The lock is designed to tell you, hey, I shouldn't go in there right now. Because if you do, it's going to be a little embarrassing for both of you. The lock is designed to tell you, hey, stay out of here. You don't belong in here, at least right now. That's what the law does. It says, hey, you're supposed to stay away from this. It's not going to keep you from staying away from it. It's going to tell you you're not supposed to do this. 
the law points out that we cannot boast about our goodness because it shows that we are also guilty and accountable. Continuing on in our main passage, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus from God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It is easy for me to see how sometimes people who aren't overly familiar with Scripture can be critical of it. Much in the same way that I can be critical of science when I see some things that don't make sense to me, being that I only have two science classes in college, because I don't really know that much about what I'm looking at. There seem to be almost direct contradictions which go against one another in Scripture sometimes, often within close proximity of each other. Here in this passage, we see Paul starting off by saying that there is no benefit in being a Jew, both for himself and his fellow Jews. He's saying That's, that doesn't get you any extra. There's no bonus involved. And yet, it would seem that he had just said the opposite a mere two paragraphs earlier when he said in verses 1 and 2, what then advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And then he says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now how does this square up with him saying in verse 9, are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. It squares up just fine in that the Jewish people had some amazing advantages. They were told flat out what it was that God wanted from them. They had no guesswork, no ambiguity. It was right there in black and white. All they had to do was read it and go, oh, that's what God wants. There was no relative concept of what one person thought God wanted and another person said, no, I think this is what God wants. They just had to look and see and go, oh, I was wrong. This is what he wants. It was right there. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. His word given to them, and they were set apart as a people who were meant to follow that word 
When it says in verse 9 that the Jews weren't any better off, it means in the area of being completely free of guilt, they weren't any better off. They had the law, but they had also broken the law. He's speaking to people who think of themselves as, I'm good because I follow the law. And he's saying, really, did you? At every single point? Just because these people over here look wicked and vile, compared to your morality, doesn't mean that you are sinless. That's what he's saying to them. He's saying to them, especially in those two very famous verses, where this whole thing is laid out in its basic form, verses 23 and 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Guilty, without a doubt, each and every one of us, guilty of sinning against God, There's not a single person in this room, not a single person who is cognizant of sin, who could be claimed to be innocent. We're guilty. Are we as deviant and have lives filled with the wickedness as the worst people in society? No, of course not. God's laws for Israel and our own laws for our own lives here on this earth bear witness to that. We don't pull people over for speeding and walk up and say, put the window down, sir. Yeah, uh, you were doing 64 and a 55 back there, so I'm afraid I'm going to have to shoot you in the head. That would be insane. No, we say, hey, you were doing 64 and a 55, so you're going to get a ticket. You were doing something a little bit wrong. We reserve the absolute worst punishments for the absolute worst sins. And sometimes theologians can get caught up in the higher thinking of of righteousness and and propitiation and all of the the good things that theologians like to study and forget to tell people you're not as terrible as the worst people down in the prisons. And people can get discouraged because they say, did the preacher just say that the, the axe murderer who killed children and I are the same? That's what I seem to walk away with this from. No. That's not what we're saying. That's not what Paul was saying. What we're saying is all of us, from the best grandma that anybody ever knew to the worst offender who ever walked the earth, are all guilty of sin and in need of a Savior. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying that don't Think of your comparative righteousness as being good enough. 
because it's not. You may never have to set foot in a human uh, courtroom as a defendant of anything, even a spirit. But that doesn't mean that you can on your own stand before the Lord and say, I'm good enough, ain't I? Because he's going to say, um, no. You want to see the instant replay on the 472 times that you weren't good enough? He's saying that we need the salvation that can only be found in the blood of Christ Jesus. And he's also saying that after we have accepted that salvation, we should be going out to everyone, to the worst aspects of society, and telling them about the salvation that they can have through the blood of Christ Jesus. Because that's what He desires. That all people should come to a saving knowledge of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're sitting here today and you haven't accepted Christ's forgiveness because you think, hey, I'm not this terrible, wicked person. That may be true. But what's also true is at some point, probably many, many points, you chose to do what you knew was wrong. And that infers guilt that can only be removed through the blood of Christ. So if you haven't, please accept that today. Please stand.